This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Nick Barley, I'm director of the festival and I'm delighted to welcome you here today. I wanted to give a very brief introduction to this, the second in a series of discussions about libraries in the city. Why do libraries matter? What impact do libraries, and indeed culture more generally, have on the health of a city? These are questions that we wanted to ask as a book festival, and to do that, we partnered up with Teatro Mundi, which is a wonderful organization based both in London at the LSE and in New York at New York University, and headed up by the marvelous Richard Sennett. Together we want to go on a journey to try to discover what it is about libraries that matters today in the 21st century. And so over the course of three events, one yesterday and two today, and two other what we're calling backstage events up at the Signet Library, workshops with library experts, we're trying to look at the role of libraries in the city today. And today's event is part of that, chaired by Ken Warpole, an expert on libraries, and with some extraordinary thinkers, and I'm sure you'll agree it's going to be a great event. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Ken, to take us forwards. Many thanks. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, firstly, I obviously should introduce the panel. On my immediate left is Tony Marks, who's president of the New York Public Library, one of the most prestigious public libraries in the world, and also a place where whenever I went to New York and arranged to meet someone, they'd always say, I'll meet you at the steps of the New York Public Library, next to the lion. Okay. And the, then left Richard Sennett, who one says hardly needs any introduction, but he should be introduced because he's had a lifetime's work starting from the Greek Agora up to the life of the Brazilian favelas, thinking about the spaces in the city where people can make a home for themselves. And that also includes the coffee houses, places where debate and discussion can go on, people can connect to each other. And on my far left is uh, Clementine de Lis, who is a curator. She worked in Edinburgh for seven years, curating a modern contemporary art programme. She then went to Frankfurt, to run a museum, and she's just been appointed as a fellow of the Institute of Advanced Study in uh, Berlin, uh, and as a curator, and also specializing in the way in which museum collections can be understood and explored in a greater way. And just before I ask Tony to start off, I'd like to say a couple of words about Teatro Mundi. I've been involved in it for a couple of years, um, it's a collection of architects and artists and researchers thinking about how we find spaces in the modern city where the role of the arts and public institutions can create meeting places and contribute to a kind of creative ferment of ideas in the city. Um, it's interesting, uh, I think, you know, as Nick just said, there are three public events which we're so privileged to be doing in conjunction with the Edinburgh Book Festival here, but we've also had two workshops uh, at the Signet Library. I think I kind of think of Teatro Mundi as a kind of travelling roadshow, a caravansary, <laughs> and it's very good that we're actually in a tent, uh, because it's got, and what we hope is the atmosphere in this tent, this will be a kind of like a tent gathering, we want people to talk and have ideas. But on, on, that's the soft part. The hard part is we do 
have run these two workshops with a lot of uh, Scots, library administrators, arts administrators, in the Signet Library, which is 200 years old, and that's the hard part. So we've got a hard and soft edge to the places where we meet. Um, I think I just want a couple of things to say. Uh, in 2010, Routledge commissioned us people to write a series of books about new, new forms of existing cultural institutions or existing architectural institutions, health centres, churches, and they asked me if I would do libraries, which enabled me to visit most of the new libraries in Europe and in the UK uh, built since 2000. And in Scotland, I went and visited and talked to the architects and the librarians at Easter House, which is Gareth Hoskins building, uh, the refurbished Mitchell Library in Glasgow, and of course the amazing Aberdeen University Library. And clearly, in the, in the last 20 years, there's been an ref, amazing revival of the notion that the library is a new place as well as an old place in the city. And if there's one kind of phrase that every librarian told me, kind of a bit of a cliche, that the library has moved from collection to connection. It's kind of, it has a new role in the city. Um, but we're also aware that public institutions are always under threat. So anyway, that's me finished. Uh, Tony Marks is now going to talk, and the provo provocation, as we call these kind of little, in these get tent gatherings here, is the notion that do we still need these public institutions in a commercialised world where Andy Warhol, for example, has said that the, well, if you, do you need a museum if you've got a department store? Do you need a library if you've got a bookshop? Tony. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> so thank you, and it's wonderful to be here and wonderful to be in this incredibly beautiful and vibrant city at this great festival, and it's always a pleasure to be with Richard. Um, so uh, I only have, I'm only going to talk quickly, um, so we have lots of time for conversation. A couple quick facts. In the United States of America, we have always understood the centrality of libraries before we were the United States of America. Ben Franklin founded the first public library in the United States in Philadelphia half a century before uh, independence. The, uh, the New York Public Libraries, all of the five borough libraries, um, there are 217 of them. They get more than 40 million physical visits a year which is more than all the museums and all the professional sporting teams in New York combined. <laughs> it's not meant as a dig, it's just a fact. The, um, <laughs> um, so I should also be clear that uh, libraries in the United States in general are publicly supported, meaning by the public purse. Um, the New York Public Library is almost unique because it is uh, roughly half of its budget comes from private sources, endowment and gifts, because the New York Public Library is also almost unique in combining a great set of research libraries, including the, the Library with the Lions, but also the Library for Performing Arts. Jackie Davis, its director, is here, um, as well as the Schomburg in Harlem. Um, and half of the, so it's split half and half in a deal that was created. Uh, thank you to Andrew Carnegie. Uh, so uh, the connections here uh, are, are longstanding. Um, rather, we have had a crisis because state funding has been in crisis. 
We have just come out of that crisis just this year, just a couple months ago. We received from the city um, the largest single increase in funding for its libraries in history. And that is because the city and its elected officials and its citizens understand the centrality of libraries. And we made that clear to them, rather than just take, thinking they would understand it, because being taken for granted does us no good. So we've reached out to the public school system. In effect, we are becoming the library for the public school system, uh, delivering up to 100 books into each classroom on demand. Um, when the mayor and all of us are concerned about a digital divide in which something like three million New Yorkers do not have internet connectivity at home, the library is now lending internet into the homes of, uh, in the poor neighborhoods. When we are concerned about building pre-K systems or after school to help uh, bolster a uh, uh, not entirely successful public school system, that's at the libraries. Um, and of course, books and amazing staff. So those are some basic facts to start with. We are like museums, going to the way that Richard posed the question to me, um, in that we seek to inspire and to enlighten and to provocate. Um, we have exhibitions because we have great treasures to show, and we have great programs. But there are differences between libraries and museums, generally speaking. First of all, we're free. We don't charge for anything. Secondly, we are the civic space, the space of civil society that perhaps there is nothing else in New York that brings all corners of the city together, that brings people of different races, different economic backgrounds. Everyone uses the library. And that's crucial if we're going to have a functioning economy and a functioning democracy. It is also a place of creativity, um, where great staff and great collections help people to add to those collections. We are more than a repository. We are active, not just passive. We are not a wastebasket. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we, 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 we try to limit how much garbage we have in that analogy. In fact, we are committed to the quality information which you cannot yet find on the web. So let's be clear about that. What does the future of the library look like? It will certainly for a long time include books, both circulating books and of course the treasured special collections and archives, etc. It will continue to be the place where we all come together to learn and to think and to create. And if we're not going to have a gated, separated society, which is where we're headed in so many ways, the library will continue to be the place that will resist that. We have to ensure quality information for free online. That has not been achieved. All the great books, archives, images should be available to anyone, anytime, anywhere for free. And the library has to ensure that for New Yorkers and globally. And we must be the education centers in every neighborhood. And we must do that well because no one is forced to come to the library. It's voluntary. 
and we can be innovative because we are not constrained in the way that, say, public schools are by particular regulations. Even if the day comes in which books are no longer central to the libraries, physical books, I think that day is far off, may never happen, but we need to think about it. We will be more essential than ever, and we will have to find ways to collaborate with the world of museums and the world of libraries to ensure the kind of informed civil society that we're going to need even more. Thank you very much. Terrific. And very good timing. Thank you, Tony. Clementine, the list, please. May I have a... Good morning. It's wonderful to be back in Edinburgh. I spent uh, seven really important years here working with the Edinburgh College of Art when it was still an independent institution, uh, but also the university and the National Galleries, and I'm, I'm particularly glad to be back here. The focus that I would like to present today has to do actually with the productive interaction that could be possible between libraries and museums. I come more from the side of museums and libraries. And I wanted to begin um, with an alert. This is a book from Timbuktu. As we know, uh, there are problems at the moment. Uh, there's a very clear, it's not arbitrary, um, there's a, a kind of a precise and anonymous um, process of destruction that is going on. This is, uh, let me just get the next one going. This is a photograph I found on the net um, of the um, Bardo Museum in um, uh, Tunisia. Uh, and I haven't got an answer to why these spaces are being uh, attacked at the moment. But I think it's a, it's a good wake-up call to think about what we should be doing, what we could be doing as regards moving away from a kind of consumerist notion or a a sort of a, yeah, a consumerist notion of a museum and looking back to the way production might be possible within these spaces. So I'd like to um, argue for a dialogical remediation and not separate libraries from museums but conjoin them and in a way strengthen the case for libraries. Do I hear, I mean having heard Tony's extraordinary um, proactive speech about libraries, I find it hard not to recall that there are problems with libraries, that people aren't going to them as much as before, uh, that access can be an issue. They are free, but sometimes you just don't get into a particular academic library unless you're an academic. And if you happen to have just traveled to a country from elsewhere, you won't get into a university, you won't get into a library, and you can't pay for a museum. So. Um, I think that um, maybe we could strengthen the case for libraries by focusing on the condition, the value and the transformation of what used to be called a research collection. Something quite anachronistic, something that is actually uh, defined and characterized by its lack of continuity. It's only as good as the research is, as the inquiry is at the moment in which this object, this series of books are made to, are called upon, are interpolated. And um, I, I've been working for five years in a museum, not this one, but I'd like to first begin with this one, because this is the most recent work I did. This is the, the Museum of History in Kiev. So it's a museum of, of um, Ukrainian history. And um, what we did for the biennial, which is about to open, is that we created the first session of what I call a museum university. 
I'm not talking now about university galleries, as you have in the States, very important institutions with collections connected to a, to a university. I'm talking about the idea that you could bring university knowledge production inside the museum and usurp public space within the museum location, so that you begin to change the way people deal with their body in these places, museums. Um, the commodification of culture obviously means that you walk through an exhibition as quickly as possible. You keep people moving. You don't want them to sit down. You certainly don't want them to hold a university seminar using objects which are stubborn, which have a materiality that isn't as flat-screened in its apprehension. It's not as uh, easy to digest. It's st it, it, it stays on the table there, and then there's a group of people in the entrance of a museum looking at different objects. And this is what we did. Uh, we brought together a collection of what we called contested objects, um, interested in a kind of migrancy within, within material culture, which we know about, but which is now accelerating, because as Richard once said so beautifully, uh, when someone travels somewhere, they have things in their suitcase. What happens to those things? So when you go to a, a country in war, not in conflict, in war like Ukraine, and you go to the flea market and you go with a group of, um, a kind of a very generalist group of students to look at what a contested object might be, you can begin to think of the possibility of a new research collection. So we looked at these objects and um, we began to debate what a national common knowledge might be. Very complex, huh? very interesting. And um, I, I think what was happening here was effectively, um, uh, here you have the different objects that were picked up on the flea market, a badge of a feminist, a Ukrainian feminist, um, all sorts of strange things that were then put in an assemblage together and which gave us the opportunity inside the museum where there were displays of Ukrainian history to talk about something else that was going on. Um, this is the museum that I w ran for five years. This is a collection. You could argue it's a department store. It was um, brought together by the Frankfurt um, uh, taxpayers, uh, an expedition to Papua New Guinea under the kind of idea that anthropology had to save other, other cultures, tribes, whatever you want. It was salvage anthropology and go there and bring back 4,000, 5,000 objects, as you can see with a kind of kleptomaniac seriality going on because at the time you still swapped. So if uh, Fritz in Munich went to the Congo and didn't bring back several versions of an object, he couldn't swap with me in Frankfurt and then we wouldn't have our encyclopedic museum, which was the whole purpose of it all. Um, this kind of swapping and selling obviously doesn't go on anymore. Uh, in order to understand what to do with a contested, problematic collection that really needs to be looked at again, uh, away from notions of quality and masterpiece towards those objects that are out of power, you have to bring in external impulses. So my argument really comes back to a generalist uh, notion of and dare I, dare I say it in front of my great mentor, Alan Johnston, but of George Elder Davies' notion of the democratic intellect. And it really is about rethinking these objects from many perspectives. And so it hits on a very delicate point, which is the new competency required of librarians and custodians and keepers who have to be much more open and sensitive to the, the other 
forms of knowledge and interpretation that could flow in and begin to remediate and rethink these collections. So the orthodoxy surrounding specialisms in museum collections, and I would argue libraries, is extremely problematic at the moment. You get a, a young group like Chimurenga in Johannesburg, or Cape Town rather, they go into libraries and they change the classification system. They mess it up. Yeah? Who's to tell me that I have to look at books in this direction and what is the, this strange um, algorithmic, pre-analogic uh, sort of algorithmic system that qualifies the way that I pick up certain books? So Two more minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll go very quickly through the laboratory that we set up in the museum in order to enable uh, a reactivation here. You nearly have a Warburgian picture atlas, but we, we looked at... We really worked with this is all in the museum. This is a question again of architectonic priorities. You can have apartments in the museum, you can have seminars in a museum, and here this is an exhibition. You can actually uh, invite people to work in the museum, which leads me to my last picture, which is why aren't people occupying collections? Why isn't there more attempts to uh, deal with literally with the access question to these collections. It's not just about restitution, which is a major question, um, and restitution could operate in the area of archives, photography, books, books that have been removed from other places and that could go back. It's actually today about a type of knowledge production that is not geared towards objectives and goals and immediate public appraisal, but is also about trying to form new, new clusters of and combinations of interdisciplinarity that actually reflect what younger students are studying today. And that, so this is, I guess, um, my, my final point, if I have a final point in all this, is um, I think we have to think of migrancy in terms of the insides of our collections and not just outside in terms of people and all, yeah? Thank you. Richard, please. Well, I, I want to say just as a, a preface that this collaboration with the Edinburgh Literary Festival is wonderful for us. It will continue. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, a lot of the work we do is, is uh, very small scale. And this, it's just wonderful to be able to talk about problems in public. So thank you for coming and for making this occasion for us. Uh, I want to actually follow up on a little what Clementine was saying and pose a question to Tony. I love posing questions. The harder, the better. Uh, and it's really about uh, what are these institutions, how do they work as actually producing knowledge? And I look at this from, for, from my point of view as a design problem. And I'm going to try and explain that to you. And I give you three little vignettes of this. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Teatro Mundi was asked to, to advise uh, Covent Garden Opera House in London about a remake that they're doing of, of uh, the Opera House. And we, we have a lot of musicians uh, in, involved in, in, in our group. And they met with some of the architects. And the architects said, we need to open up the opera house, make it more accessible to people. 
show, you know, have places where people can come in and hear you rehearse. To which Ian Bostridge said, I'd never play, the, I'd never sing there again. He said, there is something about rehearsing, about actually producing what you're going to do, which needs to be sheltered from the public. Um, my second little vignette about that was going out to the Santa Fe Institute, which is the most amazing research institute in America for sciences, sort of scientific thinking. And the director of it, we we're going to help them do a building, and the director of it said, well, you know, the main thing about this is that um, the kind of groundbreaking work we do is, trans is not transparent. You can't explain it to people. It needs to be sheltered. We don't need a space in which people can ask you what you're doing, because the answer is, I don't know yet. Um, and the third vignette, which is most personal to me, is in order to pay my grandson's school fees, which in this country are outrageous, uh, I did some commercial work for an office firm, and we made an open plan office. Rather nice, uh, uh, visually. But the head of the firm said to me, well, it's fine, it's very transparent, uh, but our pro productivity has fallen as a result <laughs> of people having no privacy. Now, I tell you all of these three things because they pose a big problem. We have made a fetish of access and transparency. You know? We think about cultural institutions as being places in which the more open they are, uh, the more dynamic they are. And from the point of view of actually producing knowledge, there are things that need to be sheltered from the general public. You use the word um, consumerism about it. It's that you deal with things that can be explained to someone else. And that's the end process of knowledge. It's not the throughput. And since libraries and museums are the two great public repositories of knowledge, for us as designers, the issue is how do we protect people from transparency while making it a democratic place? It's, it's a conflict. There's no answer to the question I've just asked you. But there is in some, uh, and I have to say that also on the side of transparency, the first thing that all neoliberal regimes do, I do not mention the current regime in Britain because we, it's unmentionable. <laughs> but the, the first thing that all neoliberal regimes do with cultural institutions is say, well, you've got to justify public modern. We've got to understand what you're doing. That is death for, for creative work. Since as, uh, as my friend at the Santa Fe Institute said, how can I justify something I don't know about yet? But that's the, log the shopkeeper logic, you know, that if you can't see it, understand it, and explain it, it's not worth funding. So my worry about this to both of you is how do you shield yourselves from that conundrum? And in the design world, the issue about it's a very, it's a very specific thing. What in, in a museum, what parts of it are not are like in Bostrich's uh, rehearsal rooms, 
inaccessible. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? Where can't you go in a library to hang out or to talk to other people? Sounds awful, right? The communal space. But if we take seriously the fact that these are spaces of knowledge production, we have to get much more serious about what we mean about what lets people use this great public resources you both deal with in a creative way rather than in the manner of display. So that's the discussion. As I say, you know, it's a problem that translates for us very concretely. Closed rooms, got to have them. Uh, uh, places where it's silence, you've got to have them, you know, if somebody's working. So there are a lot of sibyliths about, uh, about this problem that I think we need to re rethink. Uh, and democracy, great, but democracy is not the same thing as producing knowledge. May, may I yeah. come in there? There's, yeah. there's um, uh, a parallel to that. If you look at the older art academies, you always had a professor there who had his studio or her, had her studio, locked themselves up and worked on whatever they were doing, had a space in the area of learning, yeah? of learning, of education. Uh, nearly all the academies today have taken these away because they feel that they, they don't need to make work on site. Uh, it's fine if they come in for a week um, and service the students and then li leave and go elsewhere. So the, it's not just in libraries and museums that this qu question of opening up the space, uh, making, you know, the, the, the priorities of a building to shut it off and to uh, enable people to work on their own without being looked at, without knowing what they're going to produce in the end. Those are serious priorities that actually have been undermined in art academies, uh, undermined in museums. Uh, in the Weltkultur Museum, we cut it in half, and half of it was a laboratory. No one went into it. We had an apartment. We had to create a third space because an exhibition area is public, and the stores are private, and the stores are prisons. They're object prisons. You don't work in a store. You can't mix and match. You can't bring Africa in proximity to Southeast Asia. The same goes in a library. You can't start messing around with a classification. And I think that the private area is about the mixing up of classifications. I don't think it's, it's uh, purely, in I think the, the, what I was, why, why I was interested in doing a museum university in Kiev, inside, uh, out, you know, in the public area, rather than doing it backstage as a seminar, was that it seemed to me much more exciting to try and break the body code that we've already learnt, learnt to, to train ourselves for in museums, which is to look at things like this. Uh, to walk around looking for, for a screen um, experience. Tony, could I ask you, in your experience at the New York Public Library, is there a kind of um, per increasing permeability between the back office, what you might call the back office functions, and the front office functions? Clearly, it's a public library. You want people in there, but you do have a lot of work going on interpreting, classical, cataloguing, and so on. So, sure. The... Um uh, a, a lot of that now happens online. It happens with crowd activities as well. Um, I'll describe some of that. Um, I think, so a lot of issues on the table, uh, very quickly. Um, I absolutely agree that individual space, the space for individual creativity is essential, and the library has always been a place for that. Whether you're in a 
grand reading room with everybody doing their own thing, or whether in our case we have the equivalent of an Institute for Advanced Studies, we provide people from all over the world space to come for months and use our collection, we even give them stipends when, when we need to. Um, at the same time, we see an increasing demand for collaborative work. It, in my view, you want to go have both opportunities and people should be able to decide when they want to go back and forth. So that means space and online opportunities for finding each other. Um, I think uh, two other general points. Um, you have to do that in a way that still protects people's privacy, and I think the library may be the last institution in the United States of America that still believes in privacy um, and protects it. We destroy the records of what you've read as soon as the book is returned, because we don't want to have those records. Um, really? But we, we also are saying, but if you want us to keep those records so that we can serve you better, we need to find a way to give you that opportunity without it being abused. Um, the issues of efficiency, Richard, again, I agree completely. Um, look, you, when you run a major organization, you have to think about efficiencies and finances. But when people come to me and say, how do you justify what the library is doing by metrics of efficiency? My answer is, if that's your question, you know, you have no place asking that in a library. It is by definition a non-efficient enterprise and must be. The, um, you know, I mean, 95% of our collections never get looked at for decades, probably. But we have to have them, right? That is still an essential function. The, um, which goes to a larger point about creativity. Obviously, the library's been a place of creativity and providing both expert curation and staff, but also these great collections and the fickleness of that and what you browse upon, come upon. But the online possibilities now are astonishing and they're misunderstood as a threat to libraries when in fact they are the greatest opportunity ever in history for how we can help creativity. So I'll give you two quick examples. We have a great map collection. You had to come to 42nd Street to use it. Now you can go online. I invite you all to do this on our website. Look up an address, stay one in New York today, and then click through 400 years of maps of the same spot. And increasingly, people are crowdsourcing to connect what that happened at that spot, say, to the census data or the health data or the New York Times who got murdered there in 1838, whatever, right? Unbelievable possibilities at the click of a finger instead of weeks of work, right? Or another example would be Wikipedia. Imagine if Wikipedia, instead of just giving people's you know, thoughts, maybe expert, maybe not, what if there were direct references that you could go look at the primary material? If you believe, as I do, that there is much more creativity in the world's population than our current systems of education and constrained access to collections, physical, economic, what have you, then imagine the explosion of creativity if we can provide that to everyone. Imagine if anyone can follow their path of interest and leave a trail for others through any archive, any book, any image. 
and connected. That would be an amazing world in which we'd have more art, we'd have more creativity, and we'd have more solutions to our problems. Before I open it up to the audience, one last question I'd like to ask all the panel. Uh, but before that, I, am I right, Tony, in thinking that after 9-11, the first people to actually resist CIA encroachment into private things were public librarians. They refused to give details of past borrowings of... That's right. Right, so the, the destruction of, of reader records happened when the Patriot Act was put into place. That's right. Because we didn't want to be able to answer that question. It's very, very important. Right. Very important. So my question to the panel is, when Clementine talked about museums and Fritz going to uh, you know, Botswana to collect artifacts and bring them back, we regard museums as places of interpretation, and therefore their staff are engaged in kind of interpreting to, to the public. Whereas in the workshop we had yesterday, uh, Janet, a, woman, a librarian from Falkirk, running the libraries in Falkirk, said people come to us because they absolutely trust librarians. They, they, they might be next door to, for example, a council information office, but they'll go to the librarian to ask about housing benefit rather than the council information office to ask about benefit because they trust that the information coming from the librarian will be actually impartial. So librarians are kind of have to be impartial and non-interpretive in a way. A muse and museum and gallery people have to be interpreters. How do, if we want to bring these two together, are we compromising the librarian's kind of neutrality? Uh, Clementine. Well, I would just say that having worked in Germany in a museum that had 70,000 objects from non-German, not, not from Germany, but from Southeast Asia, Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, I also found out that there are five million of these objects actually stored in German museums at the moment that are, uh, apart from the highlights like the Benin bronzes or, or some certain pieces, aren't being looked at. And uh, I, have a, I come back to this slightly delicate question of the, of the, the if you want to create new knowledge, you have to, in a, and you have a relatively sick institution, like an ethnographic museum, you have to bring the healing process in through the outside. And today, when you have a museum like a history of, um, history of Ukraine museum in Kiev, and you have more and more people moving around the world, then I want to know, for example, how there is one custodian who can tell me what that object is about, and only that object, who's going to interpret it with a 19th century anthropological barrage of information that ultimately boils back to ethnicity. Yeah? So I want to be able to work with these collections um, in such a way as to, to provide them with a kind of contemporaneity, a sense of the present. And for that, you have to put some objects back into the drawer and bring other ones out. And it's only people from the outside who are educated visually or who come from law, who come from different areas, um, who can reconfigure these objects. And the, the one point that I want to say is that it's fine to have fellowships to institutes of advanced study. It's fine to be able to do that within the kind of conformist notion of knowledge production that is funded with certain grants and produces certain uh, results. But a lot of people in Germany today can't get into universities. They can't get into libraries. So the one place you can usurp is the museum. No. Lie in it. 
go and read in it, put some tables up in it. But no, everything, all the exhibitions are still geared towards some kind of, like a Arte television program or a Taschen publication. Huh? So when I was trying to work in the museum with the muse idea of the museum university, it's to say maybe if you, you can't hit on an institution fr in a frontal way, but you can transvest it, you can transit. So you bring a university idea out of the virtual, out of the screen, out of a group of people into an area of stubbornness, which is the material objects on the table which you have to look at, yeah, which you have to deal with. And for that, you need architectural solutions. You need laboratories, you need backstage areas, you need um, new kinds of formations that allow you to reconfigure this material. And I don't believe you can do it purely virtually, because then you really might as well bury the whole lot or bomb it. Yeah? But we have to look back at these things and deal with them again. Uh, in conjunction with all kinds of e-learning systems, that's clear. But uh, the world has to allow for these uh, material migrants, if you like, to be reconfigured in our, in our minds. Well, uh, I guess what I'm saying to you is that I think this is a subject that challenges a lot of very general uh, ideas we have about what a public institution should be. Uh, and in a very practical way, uh, when, uh, for instance, when people have said to me, I, I, I did work on a library project several years ago, well, we can move all the collections, we can store them outside of London. Uh, because the, the point of a library is to be able to use something. And we fought back and we said, the point is that these are, they sit there, you know? They have a life of their own, these, these things very hard for politicians to understand that. It, well, I wouldn't say hard, it's <laughs> impossible. Uh, the notion that there, uh, but the point about this is for us to think about this. The work of interpretation, to come to your question, is not something that is always self-evident to us right away. As you say, you know, 50 years, somebody will find those pieces mm -hmm. of paper that Alan Bennett thought were just trash can mm -hmm. stuff and make something of it. And what we are doing, this, this is my song to you about this, the way to fight people who are making cuts or, dem or asking why, why should we have this, it's not productive and so on, is precisely uh, to say there are values here which can't be represented, interpreted, uh, and therefore justified. It's, it is a losing game in some way because when you're dealing with public money. Uh, I mean, it's, it is, it's, the politicians have, have always got you, you know. But in the long run, even in a place like the Santa Fe Institute, there's an enormous archive which people rarely consult. So what? The archive is there, somebody someday will consult it and make something of it. I, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that the answer for us, uh, now that we're, we're on the defensive about spending and culture, is not to argue for transparency, but to make a different kind of argument about the value of cultural objects, be they books 
or physical things, which doesn't have to deal with the fact that they can be interpreted, that they can be used. Now, you know, I'm a good socialist, so this is, this is anathema, what I'm saying to you, to me. Uh, you know, I think everything should be open. But I think in the cultural sphere, we're in a different realm, and we're going to lose the battle by saying, oh, no, it's all valuable. You know, the point is it isn't valuable now, but it will be sometime. And uh, it's... It, it, I, and it's, as I say, it's linked to this whole notion that anything you own, you can explain. That's, that's a fundamental idea which I think is wrong, yeah, yeah. you know? And they've got us on this because, it's, well, if we're spending money on it, why? And the answer should be, I don't know. <laughs> Tony. Yeah. You know how far that, this would yeah, that's fly. That's not going to work. The, um, yeah, you know how far <laughs> yeah. this would fly. So I think, um, so two, two quick stories. Um, I, I think it's incumbent upon libraries, particularly library like ours, to get stuff out. So um, we have the only copy in the world of the original letter from Christopher Columbus to King Ferdinand in 1492 saying, I think I found something. <laughs> and, I'm not making this up. The... Um, and it's basically been kept in a safe for a hundred years, and it's time to get it out of the safe, in that sense, a la museums, and to use that to draw people in and to tell people what the library can do. Another example, so here's my own uh, story of my own uh, barbarity. Um, so I arrive at the library, I'm wandering around, there's a room filled with the largest pile of ancient phone books I've ever seen. And being the barbarian that I am, I said, surely we don't need to keep all these. You do. We do. That's the point <laughs> of the story. And, and, and one of the good librarians took me aside and let, said, let me tell you a story. Um, after the Second World War, the uh, Polish government resisted restitution claims by saying there were no Jews living permanently. And there was one copy in the world at the New York Public Library in that room of the Warsaw phone directory that proved that that was not correct, as if you would need to prove it. You never know, right? And, you know, we have to, we have to defend that, and not in a, not in a defensive way, in a, in a proactive way. And, and what's interesting about this moment, and I know I keep going to technology, and I actually believe in physical space and in people coming together as a core value, and in education that is not just online, but the, the very division between a research library, a closed collection, by definition, used by a relatively small number of people, and a circulating library, and remember, we are almost unique in being both of those, that distinction is going to go away. Because everything in the research collection will eventually be able to circulate, right? And we'll have to decide how to do that on demand, but also, as uh, the Timbuktu example says, we need to be ready when a country or some group of fanatics destroys cultural heritage, we need to keep those collections safeguarded and be able to replicate those if online, if not physically, for those countries and for that future as well. So it really is a global project in that way. 
Okay, thanks, Maria. Now, there is a chance for the audience to ask questions or make contributions, but should we have three to start with, uh, get them so that the panel have got a, a oh, time to think about them? You. Yeah. Oh. Okay, uh, there's one there, there's one there, and we need a th there's one there. So we've got our first three. There's one yeah. right in the far corner. Okay, there's a w woman with a red jumper there after that gentleman, and then there's uh, someone up the back. Please, yes. Thank you. Um, there's been much talk about access and interpretation. Uh, I suggest that the, the thing that links museums and, and libraries, uh, which is the, the essence of what they both do, is organizing knowledge. And through the organization of knowledge, there was a reference to uh, uh, librarians being neutral. Uh, actually, librarians are very creative because they apply classifications and so on in order that people can find material. There's a lot of work being done now on developing metadata and uh, linked open data that can enable museum objects and library objects and other objects to be brought together virtually. The importance here is that these things need structure. So for people to come into libraries and alter classification uh, uh, systems may be provocative, uh, certainly irritating, uh, and one of the reasons for that is because uh, other, it, it means that other people can't find things and the metadata does not become authoritative and it can't be used for other people to create, to, to use in sandboxes and so forth. So it's can, a plea on you, library's behalf to protect our classification schemes but also to open them up to, to, to others uh, in protected circumstances, the private areas, uh, in order to create new things. Well, Can I ask you something? Do you ever have the experience, which I've had, which I love in libraries, wandering through the stacks and suddenly finding a book you never expected to find? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, yes, it has. And yeah. I've also wandered through the stacks looking for a book. Yeah. Uh, thanks. For, uh, can I, I take that as a contribution rather than a direct question? We'll, we'll go on to the next. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. You've, you've all um, separately made a very strong case for uh, physical, original incarnation objects as being the most future-proof way of storing knowledge, not derived digital versions of those knowledge, but those original physical objects. Right. But it is a huge challenge to justify the huge amount of space, the um, climate-proof storage, all of that. Is there, is there um, a, sort of an opportunity to somehow assess the potential in those objects for future use, if you like? So you can't talk about current use but talk about potential use of those stories, those things that you store, as a way of making the case to governments and the paymasters generally for retaining those original objects. That's a very, very important question. I mean, this notion, how do we convince politicians that it's not the now, but it's the, he it's the future that actually is the place of value, the kind of... Right. Can we take the last contribution question, then I'll give the panel one final round. Yes, please, it's the person over there. Um, hi, thanks. Um, I'm lucky enough to be a librarian in Scotland, and um, 
I find um, the argument that you're making, Richard, um, quite a defeatist one because I'm quite new to library service and the reason that I came in wasn't because I love books, which I do, but because the research has been done and is ongoing, uh, has been ongoing for several decades now to prove the worth of reading um, and the worth of library services um, as an economic investment in both future generations and adult and um, existing adults. And I'm sure, Tony, that this is something that you'll have had to take to your funders in New York and the US, but that the research exists, uh, the, the proof exists, the evidence exists that um, money spent on books that are accessible to um, the population is money well spent, that it's increasing their happiness, their health, their well-being, their education, and as a result, creating um, a better society for us all to live in and for those who look at it from an economic standpoint, a more capable workforce. Um, I'd like to know if that's something that you've had to consider in your own library service. Okay, so with the two outstanding questions. One is to do with persuading politicians of the value why we should retain all this material because we never know how important it's going to be in the future. And the other is the more instrumental thing is that investment in libraries is actually investment in human capital, to use a ghastly phrase. Yeah. Uh, Tony first, and then Richard, and then... Well, it certainly on. is those kinds of arguments that work with public funders, elected officials, as well as with private funders. Um, we, uh, we rely on private, not city funds, for the research library largely, including uh, we're about to spend, or we are currently spending, I think, $25 million thereabouts to bring four, restore having four million uh, volumes on site, which is not easy to do at 42nd Street and Fifth Avenue. It's an expensive little piece of real estate. Um, but we think it's essential because you cannot fully predict um, what will be needed in the future. And it is our responsibility to preserve everything for the future. Um, and it is true that our political systems, like our economic systems, are not particularly good at incentivizing people to think about the future. They think about the next quarter profits or they think about the next election cycle. So it's on us. It's on us as librarians. It's on us as civil society to speak to our values. And that's what just happened in New York when literally, you know, a million people stood up and said, we need to take the libraries more seriously for this reason. I, I will just say that um, organizing knowledge is an essential element here. And it's going to become more essential as, more, as the masses of information become more readily available. And we need to rely on the non-biased librarians. We need to rely on experts like the folks on this panel other than me. But we also need to rely on crowds um, because we have millions of items that we could pay our librarians to do nothing but read and it would take them decades, if not centuries, to read it all. We need help. We need the public to help, but we also need ways to not rely only on that public, but also have expert interactions uh, in that. And lastly, we need a system, we will need a system going forward that is an international collaborative system that says, how are we going to divvy up the costs and the responsibilities of preserving physical items and of digitizing and putting them online, especially when there are collections that overlap. Unique material, it's relatively straightforward. 
but we all have massive collections that are duplicated in many places. We're going to need to figure out a system. Again, not one of our strengths. It's a collective action problem. Um, because everyone will say, no, no, you do it. You go first. I'll wait um, and save my budget. Um, we're going to need to get past that, and, and, and that's very much on the agenda. Okay. Two minutes each, please, from Clementine and Richard. Oh, right. Okay. Two reading. minutes. Um, uh, go ahead. Um, yeah. In all of this, the word heritage hasn't been dropped. And uh, sort of as a uh, kind of a feeling that I have that when you think of a library, you think somehow that it's, it's, a, it's a Scottish library, it's a Scottish heritage, it's readable when you are here, if you have a heritage of the place and all this. And if you started to move these libraries around, something would happen, right? You're not, you, could have the, you could invite the Moscow Library to now swap its entire books with the New York Library. <laughs> something would take place. Uh, when you do that with... I'd be when, looking for work. The question of the ethnographic museums is particularly interesting in the context of all these museum collections because it just aggravates it. It's much more... It, it, you, there's no redemption working in an ethnographic museum. Now, if you take Britain, um, Neil McGregor has sort of, when I spoke to him about the ethnographic collections of the BM, he said, yes, it was a good idea to close a museum of mankind in Burlington Gardens. It was the last breath of colonialism that went away. Uh, if you look at what he's done, however much I love him, we all love Neil McGregor, actually he's done nothing with the collections from Africa and Oceania. They're the same displays that existed 15 years ago. The Germans, however, have decided to create the Humboldt Forum, yes, this new um, complex neoclassicist building on very contested land, and there they're going to make the biggest multicultural museum. There is already five years ahead of its opening, nearly five years, they've already decided what they're going to show from Nigeria, from East Africa. They've got the masterpieces ready and they're working with set designers. In this area of where you have, you know, in Germany, five million objects, there is no concept of backstage knowledge production that might be inclusive in the sense that, you know, in South Africa, in Colombia, in Mexico, in, in Nigeria, in Senegal, in uh, all over Oceania, there are now museum studies programs and there are students who want to get access to these objects, who want to think about them differently, who want to get into the archives. So there is a real uh, question now of, of who, is the, who, is the, who is organizing, interpreting, classifying these objects from the past I put the libraries to the side, but how is it possible that someone who is an armchair anthropologist who's been sitting in an institution in the colonial country has o the only right to decide which object is going to be presented and which object should be now discussed? It isn't possible. So I think when, when you begin to, I, to look at the circulation of people around the world today, then you have to also consider the hiatus the epistemological violence you create if you start to move collections around the world, if you take the Kiev collection and put it in Hong Kong. And I think these are challenges that we have, we pretend to encounter in our daily lives because we are so multicultural. And I think who the paymasters might be for experiments in this direction, I have no idea. 
But at the same time as I discuss these new kinds of approaches to collections, we also know that the art market is producing a plethora of new collections with no real vision as to what's going to happen with them at the end of the day. So there has to be more research inside museums, but it has to be a little bit aggressive in the sense that it doesn't allow for orthodoxies of interpretation to continue to have the final statement. Richard, please. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm very sensible to your desire to uh, increase human capital. It's not a word I snoot at. Uh, through, through libraries. I think it's a very laudable thing to do. I guess what I'm saying to you is how do you increase it? And that there may be uh, uh, ways of doing that which impinge on the design world uh, may be rather traditional, like being in a space that's silent. Right? Um, which libraries traditionally were. I understand lots of people, uh, lots of my colleagues want to make uh, noisy libraries. Um, there's a question about where you can be isolated physically from other people to really learn uh, and where you should come in contact to them, where a library should be like a school and where it should be something really unique that you're not going to get in school, where you're always physically present to other people. So my, I guess what I'm saying is when this comes down to actually designing a place, we have to think about what it is that people do when they build up knowledge. And that, uh, what I've been trying to say is, that's not so simple as making it transparent. It's, we learn in more complex ways and we pile up knowledge in more complex ways than simply making things uh, open. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank the panel on your behalf very much for a perfect. Now, uh, Richard's books are on sale and he'll be signing them after this event. Uh, and I think may, one of mine may be there as well. The other thing is at 3.45 today, the third of the public sessions happens in this room involving Francine Huban, the architect from Meccano who designed the Birmingham Library, um, William Seagart, uh, Seagart, who wrote a very important book on uh, a report for the UK government on the future of libraries, and uh, Robin Mersak. Uh, and, uh, from Durham University. So it's the third and final episode in this five-session event on libraries and literacy. Thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.